Hello and welcome to the Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. In this episode, we'll look at Shupiluliuma, perhaps the greatest king of the Hittites. He took over a struggling Hittite kingdom, destroyed their nearest competition, and helped establish an empire that rivaled the power of ancient Egypt. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. And as I mentioned in the season opener, I'm giving away those replica coins as well as a reproduction of the Knight's Oath from the House of Savoy to five lucky winners who just give an iTunes review or donate any amount of money to the podcast. So take a screenshot of the review or donation and send it to me to enter. With that, it's time to really start the season. This is Season 3, Episode 1, Shupiluliuma, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Shupiluliuma was born in the first half of the 1300s BC as a prince of the people of the land of Hatti. This is what they called themselves at least. We call them the Hittites. At that time, the Hittites had established themselves as a relatively strong kingdom among many others in the region. They had been the dominant power in Anatolia for a time, but their fortunes had waned and they were a smaller kingdom again this time on the verge of destruction. There were some much stronger powers in the eastern Mediterranean that certainly outweighed their influence. To their west lay the kingdom of Ahiyawa, a seafaring people who had influence over but lay beyond the west coast of Anatolia. It seems that the city of Milawata, eventually the Ionian Greek city of Miletus, was their base of operations on the peninsula. It is today believed that Ahiyawa is the Hittite's way of writing an older version of the word Achaean. If this word seems familiar to you, it's probably because it's how Homer referred to at least some of the Greek people in his epic poems. The Ahiyawa were most likely what we would call the Mycenaean Greeks, and they were a major power in the eastern Mediterranean in the 14th century BC. Whether or not Agamemnon, Achilles, or Menelaus actually did all those things we've heard, and if that was their real names. Troy, the city sacked in the Iliad, known as Ilium in Greek, is thought to be in the small kingdom of Willusa at the city of Hisarlik. It is likely that at some point, perhaps during the events of the Iliad, Willusa was a client kingdom of the Hittites. The events of the Trojan War may well have been in the greater context of the Mycenaeans trying to pry a vassal state away from the Hittites. You know, if you think that's a true story, but have trouble believing it was all over Helen. There were some other minor Anatolian powers in Shupiluliuma's day, but we'll get to them. Stronger still were the Mitanni people to the immediate south and east in modern Syria as well as southeast Turkey. 
The Mitanni were a group of Hurrian peoples who had eventually united, possibly under a ruling warrior class, to quickly become Hatti's most powerful immediate neighbor. Beyond Mitanni, further east lay Assyria, which wasn't the major power it once was, or would eventually be again. The Mitanni filled the vacuum left by the absence of a strong Assyrian kingdom, and at its height, ruled from southeast Anatolia across Syria into Assyria's one-time capital of Assur on the upper Tigris. Further down the Tigris and the Euphrates, the Babylonians under the Kassite dynasty ruled as one of the major powers of the era. And to the west of them, on the other side of the Arabian Peninsula, lay the ancient and powerful Egyptian Empire. When Shupiluliuma was born, Amenhotep III was pharaoh. During his reign, Egypt was in its 18th dynasty, the first of the New Kingdom period, which it had been in for nearly two centuries. This period is considered one of the peaks of Egyptian civilization. Amenhotep's reign itself is thought of by many Egyptian scholars as the peak of Egyptian international influence, wealth, and artistic elegance. As for the rest of the world we have to be more general about the 14th century BC. Northern and Western Europe were populated by late Bronze Age peoples, which are today called things like the Urnfeld culture and the Atlantic Bronze Age system. These weren't large contiguous civilizations, and without written records, they were prehistoric in the literal use of the term. Though they probably were small communities ruled by local chieftains, they had complex trading networks throughout the region walled cities, bronze weapons, and intricate artwork. In China, the Yellow River region had been a more unified society, ruled by the kings of the Bronze Age, Shang Dynasty, since about 1600 BC. The earliest known Chinese writing, Oracle Bone Script, is dated to right around Shupaluliuma's time, the 14th or 13th century BC. Northern India was in the early Vedic period, where Indo-Aryan people had moved in after the collapse of the Indus Valley Civilization, also known as the Harappan Civilization of Mohenjo-Daro fame. The Vedic people were Indo-Europeans, and probably a cultural mix of this and the Harappan influence. And around Shupaluliam's time, they composed the Rig Veda, a collection of Vedic Sanskrit hymns. As well as being a sacred Hindu text, These are some of the oldest Indo-European writings known. In the Americas, the early Olmec civilization was on the rise in Mesoamerica. Further south, the other region where the first big civilizations developed in that hemisphere, the Western Andes region, saw early pyramid builders and the beginnings of the Chavan culture. And that should bring us back around to the Hittites, living in northeast Anatolia. We have a pretty good idea of who they were by Shupaluliuma's day, but we're not quite sure where they came from. Their history has only been pieced together recently. Just a few hundred years ago, they were thought of as a minor kingdom that was briefly mentioned in the Bible, but of no real consequence. Recent discoveries have changed this interpretation greatly, and by the early 20th century, archaeologists had discovered enough about them that historians realized they rivaled Egypt at its height. Turns out, the Hittites were an immensely powerful kingdom that had essentially been almost completely forgotten for 3,000 years. 
Sites were discovered in the 1800s, and the Hittite language was finally deciphered in the early part of the 20th century, actually during World War I, by an active-duty Czech soldier in the Austro-Hungarian army. Today, it is the oldest known member of the Indo-European language family. They also had a complicated legal system, and they had religious beliefs that influenced Greek, Roman, and even biblical thought. Today, we also know much about Eastern Anatolia's history before the rise of the Hittites, thanks to its neighbors. Around the turn of the second millennium BC, something like the 20th and 19th centuries BC, for the sake of trying not to confuse you, let's just say 2000, give or take, the Assyrians were on the rise in the Near East. Sargon the Great of Akkad had established maybe the world's first real empire in 2300 BC, and it ruled over the city of Assur, or Ashur, on the Tigris in today's Iraq. When that empire collapsed, the Assyrians rose as an influential regional power, and throughout this time, first the Akkadians, and after them, or simultaneously, the Assyrians, entered Anatolia as merchants and traders. In what is known as the Assyrian colony period in Anatolia, the Assyrians had, unsurprisingly, colonies throughout central and eastern Anatolia, including in what became the Hittite heartland. These may have dated back to before Sargon's time, but we have more evidence of it during the Assyrian era. The region was not unpopulated or quote-unquote uncivilized. I mean, maybe it was to the Assyrians, but not to our eyes looking back at what the world of 2000 BC should look like. There were organized city-states, and the Assyrian colonies were not at all like European New World colonies dominating and displacing a native population. Instead, they were more like trading centers, like the Venetian Quarter in Constantinople before its conquest, or a Persian neighborhood in ancient India, where merchants lived and directed trade, probably had outsized influence on the politics of the city, but did not dominate the populace. The Assyrians called them Karum, which means something like port. And they set up outside of the cities, paying taxes to the local Anatolian kings. It was a good place to do this precisely because these cities existed where they could set up shop. According to Trevor Bryce in his book, The Kingdom of the Hittites, quote, Central Anatolia offered the attractions of a series of already well-established urban cultures within the framework of relatively coherent political structures conducive to profitable commercial activities throughout the region, unquote. Anatolia was also attractive to the Assyrians because it had an abundance of metals. In this, the Bronze Age, Anatolia was a major source of copper, the main ingredient in bronze. However, what makes copper into that much harder bronze is creating an alloy of about 90% copper and 10% tin. So while an abundance of copper was incredibly important to Bronze Age society, some source of tin was necessary. And because Anatolia had little to no tin, this movement of goods was mutually beneficial. Along with tin, the Assyrians also brought their cuneiform writing, an obviously important development in the region. The relationships here seem to have been incredibly peaceful considering the period we're talking about. 
Bryce calls them remarkably harmonious and mutually beneficial, and they seem to have really been about the exchange of goods. There isn't real evidence, it seems, of the Assyrians trying to extend their empire into the region, and the Anatolians probably very much appreciated the source of tin. It may have helped that the region seemed to be more like interconnected city-states rather than a regional empire, and the distance may have been far enough that Assyria never really thought to extend to control it. Anatolia itself was not stagnant throughout this time. Into this region, sometime before 2000 BC, came an Indo-European-speaking group of people. The Indo-Europeans probably originated in the Eurasian steppe north of the Black Sea, and whether a large group came or just some warriors came, we're not sure, but they established some sort of kingdom. At some point, it began to expand its territory over its neighbors and began the process of growing into something bigger. Not that Anatolia was totally peaceful before these guys showed up. The city-states did make war against each other, and there was regional conflict. And perhaps even back then, some city-states banded together, and slightly larger states emerged. These Indo-Europeans that became the Hittites probably were one of a dozen or so kingdoms in the area. In the early 1700s BC, though, their relationship with Assyria began to dry up as did the system of colonies. A group of people, the Hurrians, established themselves in northern Syria, in between eastern Anatolia and Assyria. Assyrian power waned, and Hammurabi, the Babylonian king from further down that river system, absorbed at least some of their territory. Back in Anatolia over the next few centuries, the local powers tussled over the region. The land of Hatti was in the middle of modern Turkey, slightly to the north and slightly east of dead center. It controlled territory along the Marasantaya River, known as the Halas River to the Greeks and Romans, known today as the Kizil Ermak. Hattusili I, along with a possible predecessor named Labarna, who may have actually been Hattusili, we're just not positive, weren't the first Hittite rulers, but they began what is thought of as the Hittite kingdom in the 1600s. They started expanding their territory, and Hattusili established the capital of Hattusha. Hattusili invaded neighboring regions, conquered most of eastern Anatolia, and led an army into Syria, although that was more for plunder than conquest. After Hattusili, his grandson, Mershali I, led the Hittites' continued dominance of the region. They conquered the city of Aleppo, the capital of the Amorite Yamhad dynasty, before, according to Hittite sources, quote, subsequently he marched to Babylon and he destroyed Babylon and defeated the Hurrian troops and brought captives and possessions of Babylon to Hattusha, unquote. They even made off with the idol god of Marduk, the patron deity of the city. This effectively ended the first Babylonian dynasty in 1531. This kingdom, at one time under Hammurabi, ruled much of southern Mesopotamia. It was soon replaced by the Kassite dynasty, which ruled Babylon for the next five centuries. Despite these conquests, the next 150 years or so were not as kind to the Hittites. Mershuli was assassinated, and they entered a period of decline. 
Their influence waned greatly, and by the 1400s, they were again confined to the core area around the Mara Santaya River. Hatti didn't have much in the way of natural barriers, and the Hittites constantly faced threats to their heartland. They were often near complete collapse or conquest at this time. To the north, in what would someday be Mithridates the Great's kingdom of Pontus, were the Casca tribes, who were a constant threat to the land of Hatti. According to archaeologists Claudia Gatz and Roger Matthews, quote, the northern and northeastern borders of the Hittite Empire of late Bronze Age Anatolia hosted a loosely federated group of peoples known as the Casca. Their significance for the Hittites is indicated by the fact that they are mentioned as enemies in every major historical work of the Hittites. Unquote. To the east, along the coast, lay the Azi Hayasa, and south of them, where Anatolia sort of ends and the rest of Asia begins, were the Asua. South of them was the Mitanni Empire, the major power in that region. And swinging back around clockwise and making our way back onto the peninsula, the territory of Kizuwadna lay in Cilicia, that place where Anatolia meets the continent and the shoreline turns south to form the eastern edge of the Mediterranean. As we make our way west across the Mediterranean coast of Anatolia, we eventually reach the region called Luca later known as Lycia, pronounced Lycia in Greek, which held a group of independent but aligned states. In between Luca and Kizuwadna, but a little north and off the coast, was a region the Hittites called the Lower Land. Far western Anatolia held a confederation of people known as Arzawa and included the cities of Apasa and Milawata, which became the great classical cities of Ephesus and Miletus. And as you go up the west coast, just before you reach the Hellespont, you get to Walusa, the site of Troy. These people were probably not so much a united kingdom, but more of a loose confederation, at times involved closely with the Mycenaeans, which we mentioned earlier operated out of, or perhaps had taken, the city of Milawata. Hattusha, the Hittite capital, was a large city, giving some idea of their power. It was originally settled around 2000 BC, but was sacked and destroyed before being rebuilt and made the capital by the king Hattusheli. According to Bryce, quote, Still imposing in its ruins, Hattusha once encompassed, at its greatest extent, an area of some 165 hectares, making it one of the largest and most impressive of all ancient capitals, unquote. It had an upper and lower city with a palace and dozens of temples. The upper city was surrounded by a wall with five gates, including the Sphinx Gate and the Lion Gate. In the 1400s and into the early 1300s, the Hittites were beginning again to rise as a power. They launched military incursions into western Anatolia. The region of Kizuwadna in Cilicia signed a treaty with the Hittites, perhaps to escape Mitanni dominance and became a vassal kingdom. This area would eventually be directly ruled by the Hittites. In the middle of the 1300s, Shupiluliuma's father, Tudhailia, came to the throne. At some point early in Tudhailia's reign, disaster struck. The Casca tribes from the north had for a long time been a major problem for the Hittites. They continually invaded Hatti, and at some point, 
they raided and sacked Hattusha, the capital. Around the same time, although probably not in a coordinated move, more like groups taking advantage of an apparent weakness, the Arzawan people from the west also invaded, taking the territory in the lower land. Arzawa, that coalition of people from what would become one of the richest portions of the Greek world in classical antiquity, seemed to have the upper hand in the peninsula. The Hittites were mostly confined to their core land of Hatti, which was being pillaged by the Kaska people. The Egyptian pharaoh Tutmosis IV was trying to conduct diplomacy with the Arzawa, not with the Hittites. The Hittites were in trouble. But Tudhailia was able to bring them back from the brink. From a new capital, Samuha, he began the process of retaking his lands and expanding his empire. Timing is unclear, but in the first half of the 14th century BC, Shupiluliuma was born. We think these disasters befell the empire right around his birth. The recovery began in earnest when he was young, but certainly by the time it picked up steam, he was heavily involved in his father's government. According to Bryce, Quote, for many years before his accession, Shupiluliuma was his father's chief advisor, partner, and comrade-in-arms in the campaigns of reconquest. And while we should take nothing from Tudhailia's own achievements, it was undoubtedly his partnership with his son, who was to prove the most brilliant of all Hittite military leaders, that helped ensure his success, unquote. They began by attacking their greatest threat, the Kaska to the north. We know very little about any actual battles, but they seem to have succeeded in winning at least a few, taking captives, and generally beginning to feel secure enough to look in other directions. We do know that the Hittites' military, when able to gather and fight in the way they chose, were incredibly powerful for the era. They had infantry armed with spears, but their chariots were what made them so formidable. The Hittites actually modified the typical chariot of the era by moving the axle from the back, making them able to support an additional soldier and increasing its firepower. After Casca, the Hittites turned west to reclaim former subject territories. They were successful in this, but had to return home, as Casca again began making trouble closer to the capital. When they once again took care of these enemies, next they had to deal with another close neighbor, also to the north and just east of the Casca, the Azihayasa. Shupiluliuma went in first, but he wasn't able to force a battle. However, soon his father arrived with the rest of the troops, and together they were able to gain a decisive victory. This region was turned into a vassal state, under a new king who was more amenable to the situation, and who was married to Shupiluliuma's sister in order to cement familial allegiance. Their nearest enemies now tamed, the Hittites turned back west, to deal with the most powerful neighbor on the peninsula again, the Arzawans. Shupiluliuma begged his father to be sent there as the general in charge of the army, and his wish was granted. First, he ventured into that former subject region they called the Lower Land, very close to the land of Hatti, which was now occupied by the Arzawans. The start of the campaign opened well enough. According to the deeds of Shupiluliuma, written by his son and heir, Mershuli II. Quote, the gods help my father, the sun goddess of Arena, the storm god of Hatti, the storm god of the army, and Ishtar of the battlefield, 
My father slew the Arzawan enemy, and the enemy troops died in multitude, unquote. A pretty successful opening salvo, but the Arzawans were strong at this time, and they were far from done. They would continue to be a source of conflict for the Hittites for a few decades. After something like two decades in power himself, Tudhailia died, but he did not name Shupaluliuma as his heir. This may or may not have been surprising at the time, but historians find it pretty shocking now. Instead, another son, Tudhailia III, was given the crown. Shupaluliuma pledged loyalty, but he didn't really mean it. Now maybe old Shupi was right to feel disrespected. We don't hear anything about Tudhailia III leading campaigns under their father. Alternatively, it's possible we don't hear those things because those pieces of information were conveniently left out of sources like the deeds of Shupaluliuma. Either way, Shupaluliuma rose up against his brother the king and it did not end peacefully. Tudhailia III was murdered by Shupaluliuma either directly or by some orchestrated assassination. His son Marshuli acknowledged as much, despite his often one-sided praise for his father, and noted that princes and others who sided with Tudhailia were also killed. This was around the year 1344, and what is called the Hittite Empire period was now upon them. Amenhotep III was in his final years as pharaoh of Egypt. He was, within the next few years, succeeded by his son, who would soon change his name to Akhenaten and try to impose a new religion on Egypt, the worship of one god, Aten, supreme over the rest of the pantheon. It did not go over particularly well. Back in Anatolia, Shupaluliumo was now entrenched as king and focused on the continued expansion of his kingdom. He had, mostly while his father was king, taken back much of Anatolia, the Arzawa were still not fully subdued, and there were a few other rivals in the western half, but the eastern half was mostly his, so he turned further east. First, he fought with the people of the land of Isuwa, a smaller state that was in between the Hittite and Mitanni lands, and they were allied with the Mitanni. The city of Tegarama was taken from the Isuwa, it was along the trade routes into Syria and may have been a target because it led to the Mitanni lands. At the time, the Mitanni themselves were in a bit of turmoil, as their king Shutarna had died and a succession struggle ensued. It was during this crisis that, after defeating the Asua, Shupaluliuma began his war with the Mitanni, probably a little less than five years after his own coronation, around 1340 BC. Hittite scholars call this the First Syrian War, and it didn't go perfectly well for the Hittites, it seems, at least according to a letter from Tushrata, the Numitani king, to Amenhotep III, claiming victory in battle. This battle may have occurred in Asuwa or in Syria, we really don't know. And we don't know if this caused Shupaluliuma to reassess his tactics or not, but we do know that he set about preparing in every way possible for a more complete and effective invasion. He began by creating an alliance with a man named Artatama, the rival claimant to the Mitanni throne. He also wrote to Akhenaten's successor, Smenkare, who didn't live very long, outlining the wonderful relationship he and Akhenaten had enjoyed. These were diplomatic attempts to isolate the Mitanni, 
and prevent outside interference in his war of conquest. Again from Bryce, quote, The magnitude of his task can hardly be overestimated. Not only was he preparing to take on the military might of the Mitannian king on the latter's own territory, but in order to establish his supremacy in Syria, he had also to confront a formidable coalition of enemy forces mustered from the kingdoms of the region. So long as these kingdoms could call on the support of their Mitannian overlord, a Hittite campaign against them could well end in failure. A direct all-out attack on the heartland of the Mitannian kingdom had to be the first priority, unquote. He may well have even had a pretext, as a king of Nushashi, a client of the Mitanni near the Orontes River, declared allegiance to the Hittites. The Mitanni attacked, and this, along with some uprisings in the newly taken Asua, were Shupaluliuma's first targets. He crossed the northern part of the Euphrates to take on Asua before heading south towards Wash Shukani, the Mitanni capital. His attacks were quick and very effective. It wasn't long before Tushrata was fleeing his capital, and the city fell to the Hittite army. Washukani was in eastern Mitanni lands, perhaps in the northeastern portion of modern-day Syria, although nobody's really sure. It's possible that King Tushrata still had much of his forces in his western territory. And this is where Shupaluliuma headed next, crossing back west over the Euphrates, before taking the great city of Aleppo, also retaking or joining up with New Hashi, and working his way all the way to the Mediterranean. He made it south to Damascus, conquering much of modern-day Syria, but mostly leaving what is today's Lebanon alone, as it was under Egyptian control. He had planned on leaving the city of Kadesh alone as well, since it too had Egyptian overlordship. But as he tried to make his way around it, the city's king came out to wage battle, and Shupaluliuma took him up on the offer. After defeating the men of Kadesh, he led them off in chains and eventually let the king's son take the throne as a Hittite vassal. Also in the region was the small but powerful kingdom of Ugarit, another one of these city-states that pledged allegiance to a greater power. But Ugarit, or Ugarit, was a Mediterranean trading hub. It was a major metalworking hub. It was wealthy and it was more powerful than most cities. Shupaluliuma tried to form an alliance with Ugarit. The problem was, they were allied with Egypt. It seems that when their king died and a new one, Nikmadu, came to power, Shupaluliuma asked again for their vassalage. In a letter that survives, he also offers them their neighbor's territory. Quote, just as formerly your ancestors were friends and not enemies of the land of Hatti, now you, Nikmadu, be the enemy of my enemy and the friend of my friend. Be faithful, O Nikmadu, to the alliance of friendship with the land of Hatti, and you will see then how the great king deals with the kings of Nuhashi and the king of Mukish, who abandoned the alliance of friendship with the land of Hatti and became the enemies of the great king and their master. If then all these kings launch an attack on your country, do not be afraid, Nikmadu, but immediately send one of your messengers to me. But if you, Nikmadu, attack first with your armies the troops of Nuhashi or Mukish, let no one take them from your hands, unquote. Nikmadu agreed to this alliance, and Ugarit was soon invaded by these neighbors. 
But Chupaluliuma was true to his word and sent in Hittite troops to reassert Nikmadu's control. Nikmadu was also given authority over two other neighboring regions, and for the most part it seems this was following their conquest by the Hittites. In this case, at least, it was good to be the king of a well-respected city-state, and Ugarit reaped some rewards. The Hittites proceeded to conquer all of these lands allied with Mitanni, including that king of the new Hashi who had initially appealed to the Hittites for help. It seems that this king betrayed the Hittites in some way and had to flee. The conquest continued into the region of Amuru, which included some cities that were vassals of Egypt, before the pharaoh Akhenaten eventually sent some amount of at least token force to help keep his territory. The conquest, though, was an unmitigated success for the Hittites. Over the course of probably not much more than a year, they took most of the Mitanni lands. They had set up vassal states and installed or reinforced loyal kings in each of them. The First Syrian War dealt a severe blow to the Mitanni, and Shupaluliuma did take territory and create vassal kingdoms in the region. But it was still incomplete. He hadn't captured Tushrati, the king of the Mitanni, and one city remained outside of his grasp, Carchemish, which sat on the Euphrates. It took him perhaps a decade of consolidating his gains and preparing for the next step, finishing up the Mitanni and creating a true empire over the region. In the meantime, he wasn't idle. He installed his son Telepinu as the high priest, a position of great consequence, over the region of Kizuwadna. This area, southeastern Anatolia, Cilicia, was vital for access to Syria, and this was likely done to help maintain direct control over the region. He found a new wife. Perhaps his old wife Henty died, or was banished somewhere, or she may have lived a very comfortable life in the palace, but she isn't found anymore in the records after this. Instead, his new wife, Tawanana, stepped into the scene. She was the daughter of the king of the Kassite dynasty ruling Babylon and the rest of Lower Mesopotamia. Henti, before she left the story, did give Shupaluliuma five sons. Most were probably born before he became king, only because the youngest was a young adult by the end of his reign. Tawanana, on the other hand, helped forge a political alliance, or at least friendship, which helped keep the Kassite Babylonians, bordering the Mitanni to the southeast, from entering the fray. What followed the First Syrian War, that lightning year-long campaign to take most of the Mitanni kingdom, was called, unsurprisingly, the Second Syrian War. It is also known as the Hurrian War, after the Hurrian people of the Mitanni kingdom, and it was decidedly less lightning-like than the first. It took something like six years, but the result was the final subjugation and consolidation of the Mitanni territory. In Aleppo, Shupaluliuma did not install a client king. Instead, he moved his son Telepinu from Kizuwandu into the role of viceroy. Together with Telepinu, Shupaluliuma countered any Mitanni attacks that Tushrata could muster. And finally, after a seven-day siege, took Carchemish in about 1328 B.C., he sent the inhabitants as well as their precious metal goods back to Hattusha. He then appointed another son, Piashili, as viceroy of Carchemish. Piashili took a Hurrian throne name, Shari Kusha. 
The Mitanni threat was finally completely extinguished when King Tushrata, like Darius III, another king in the region, fleeing an army from the west with dwindling troops at his disposal almost exactly a thousand years later, was assassinated by his aides and generals. Towards the end of the Mitanni destruction, the pharaoh of Egypt was now Tutankhamun, and as you may know, King Tut didn't survive very long. As forces of the old religion coalesced around the royal family and attempted to retake priestly control, his young queen, Ankes Amun, looked for outside help. With no family members to turn to, she sent a letter to Shupaluliuma asking for one of his sons as a husband. He was skeptical of this kind of shocking offer, but the Hittite prince could be the pharaoh, and if things went perfectly well, the Hittites could rule over Egypt. A trusted messenger was sent to appraise the situation, to which the queen took great offense. She wrote an impassioned letter back. Quote, Had I a son, would I have written about my own and my country's shame to a foreign land? You did not believe me, and you have even spoke thus to me? He who was my husband is dead. I have no son. Never shall I take a servant of mine and make him my husband. I have written to no other country. Only to you I have written. They say you have many sons, so give me one son of yours. To me he will be husband. In Egypt he will be king. Unquote. He was convinced of her authenticity, and so he sent a son. He didn't want to send either of his viceroys, Telepino or Shari Kushu, and he didn't want to send his own crown prince, Arnuanda. So he sent Zananza, his fourth son, to become pharaoh. It would have been an incredible diplomatic victory if he could install his son on the Egyptian throne and eventually consolidate the kingdoms, or at least ally them formally. But it was not to be. Zananza was murdered on his way to meet the queen, probably by agents of the Egyptian priesthood who had been marginalized under Akhenaten and were attempting to reinstall their religion and their control. Shupaluliuma was enraged at the loss of his son, and at the betrayal, even if it probably really wasn't a betrayal. He launched raids into southern Syria and Lebanon, taking cities allied to and protected by Egypt, and capturing Egyptian soldiers. The absolute collapse of the Mitanni allowed the Hittites to consolidate rule, but their focus was on the western portion of this now former kingdom. In its east and north, the Assyrians under the Mitanni thumb for a few centuries, took advantage of the situation and began to reassert their own power. They installed a friendly member of the Mitanni royal family back on the throne at Washugani, and the Hittites immediately saw a threat to their new territory. Together with a Mitanni prince who had fled first to Babylon before ending up in Hatti, the Hittite prince and viceroy Shari Kushu gathered forces in Carchemish in order to launch an invasion. They crossed the Euphrates and were able to take Wash Shugani and install the prince on the throne, and it doesn't appear that there was a ton of resistance. The Assyrian king was probably willing to let the Hittites, now the major power in the region, in order to avoid war with them. A treaty was drawn up with his new vassal puppet king of Mitanni, and much of the former Mitanni lands were transferred to the viceroyalty in Carchemish. At some point during his reign, Shupaluliuma demanded the return of Hittite captives from the Arzawans and was rebuffed. 
He sent in an army led by a general named Himuli to retake them, who was defeated. Shupaluliuma then went in himself and scored enough of a victory to get them to acquiesce to his demand. It had taken two decades of conflict and warfare, dating back to the time before he was king, and Shupaluliuma may not have ever fully defeated the Arzawans. But, by the time he died in 1322, six years after the conquest of Carchemish, he appears to have controlled most of Anatolia too. He eventually succumbed to a plague that ravaged Hattusha, which was brought in by those very Egyptian troops he relocated there after his son was killed and he went on a vengeance spree. After his death, the crown was passed to Arnuanda, who was a respected general under his father but he died soon after too, probably also due to the plague. Maybe because the other two experienced sons had vital roles and were ingrained with the populations in their viceroyalties, they were not given the throne. Instead, Shupaluliuma's youngest son, Mershuli or Mershili, became King Mershili II in 1321 BC. He was old enough to bypass any sort of regency, but he was young and viewed as untested. According to Hittite annals, quote, And the neighboring enemy land spoke as follows. His father, who was king of the land of Hatti and a hero king, held sway over the enemy's lands, and he became a god. But his son, who sat upon his father's throne and was previously a great warrior, fell ill, and he also became a god. Yet he who has recently sat upon his father's throne is a child. He will not preserve the land of Hatti and the territory of the Hatti lands, unquote. Mershili turned out, though, to be an effective ruler. He faced invasions in Anatolia and rebellion in Syria, but together with his brothers, he was able to subdue their enemies, consolidate power, and even continue Hittite expansion. By the time of Mershili's death around 1295 BC, western Anatolia and the lands of the Arzawa were firmly under Hittite control. At some point in the next century, Troy Level 7, a city with defensive walls and towers, was destroyed. If there is any truth to the Iliad, this might well have been the siege we've all heard about. Meanwhile, the Hittites had become a superpower, and when Egypt recovered under Ramses II, Ramses the Great, the two empires had a showdown in the Battle of Kadesh, that city that Shupaluliuma had wanted to bypass but ended up defeating. Ramses claimed the new Battle of Kadesh as a victory in subsequent hieroglyphics on five different temples, but modern historians have a different interpretation. While the Hittites certainly suffered significant losses, they lured Ramses into a trap, and he was lucky to survive the battle when his reinforcements arrived and bailed him out. The Egyptians ended up retreating afterwards, and the Hittites took some of their territory. So, a tactical victory for Ramses is a possible result. He did kill a lot of Hittites and not get himself killed. But a strategic victory for the people of the land of Hatti seems to be the important result. The Hittites remained a great power in the region, and they actually developed a much more friendly relationship with Egypt by the latter part of the 13th century. This was due in no small part to the growing power of Assyria to the east. 
The Hittite Empire lasted for about two centuries as a major power after Shupaluliuma began retaking lands under his father. In the 1190s, the last known king of the Hittites, Shupaluliuma II, saw the destruction of his empire during a regional time of turmoil that is known as the Bronze Age Collapse. We don't really know what happened during this time, but it is thought to be a combination of factors. The Hittites themselves probably saw significant internal conflict leading up to this. Additionally, natural disasters such as drought and ensuing famine and mass migration are thought to have played a role. And finally, what are recorded in Egyptian records as the Sea Peoples seem to have swarmed over the eastern Mediterranean and inflicted devastation on the major powers. Hattusha was sacked, probably by local enemies like the Kaska. The Hittite Empire fractured, although the viceroyalty at Carchemish remained under the control of Shupaluliuma I's great-great-grandson. This area became, to its contemporaries, the land of Hatti, and is today known by historians as the Neo-Hittite Kingdom. Thanks to Shupaluliuma, the Hittites became the most powerful empire in the region, perhaps in the world. Eventually, after Egypt recovered from its own internal conflicts, the two powers dominated the Near East until the Bronze Age collapse. But before this collapse, Shupaluliuma helped usher in an era of ascendancy for the Hittites. We turn one last time to Bryce. Quote, He is generally regarded as the greatest of all Hittite kings, and his reputation is, in many respects, well-merited. He had brought the kingdom of Hatti from the brink of annihilation to become the most powerful kingdom of the Near Eastern world. He had achieved the destruction of the Mitannian Empire, which had long been the greatest threat to Hittite expansion in Syria and a major threat to the security of Hittite territories within Anatolia, including the homeland itself, unquote. Shupaluliuma was a gifted military commander and an intelligent diplomat. He brought the people of the land of Hatti into a golden age that made the Hittites the great power in the Near East, ruling from western Anatolia through to the Euphrates down to modern-day Syria. The empire that he created lasted two centuries and rivaled ancient Egypt at its peak for power and influence in the region. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please leave a comment on iTunes. In two weeks, we'll stay in this relative region and travel a little bit east and forward about 15 centuries to learn about a man who toppled an aging kingdom that was the rival to Rome for centuries and create a new one that will be its rival for the next few centuries. Thanks again for listening.